Hey guys, hi, we're back to the Neil Haley Show here on the Total Celebrity segment. And I'm excited to welcome to the show, and I'm excited to welcome Adrian Grew and also Bradley Constant of Young Rock on NBC. Guys, how are you? I'm good, Great. how are you? Fantastic. So I'm going to kind of just jump right off the bat and tell a story. The Rock is so humble. Even before he was The Rock, I met him. We were working at USWA down at TV taping, and, and, he, and, and Dwayne comes up to me and he says, Neil, I forgot my, and he knew me from doing some other shots. He said, Neil, I forgot my knee pads. Can I wear them for TV? And I said, okay, sure. So he came up to me and we were having a conversation. He was just such a, just unbelievable, nice guy all the time. And Adrian, I question goes to you really quickly. Is that, isn't that true about him when you've gotten the opportunity to understand that character and who he is as a person? Yeah, a hundred percent. He's such a, easy guy to talk to and he's so open about everything he, he it's like he never gets annoyed no matter how many questions you ask exactly and that's the the thing that makes him so true and, and you agree with me as well bradley oh 100 and going into this of course we i'm sure we all felt a little pressure because we all knew who he was you know and uh you know, once once we met him and talked to him, you're like, OK, you, you kind of forget about the fact he's the rock and all that. You know, he's just exactly. a really genuine and honest and open guy. And, you know, he's what you see is what you get. He's really cool. Yeah. He's definitely a cool guy. And but again, humble beginnings. So, Adrian, tell us about yeah. your character a little bit, meaning how the, the I'm understanding more and more, because when you watch the previews, you don't understand. How can you talk about three different stories at once in each episode, which I love the storyline. So kind of talk about how they're going to show you, Adrian, as ro the rock at a certain age and you, Bradley. So go first with you, Adrian. Um, so it's going to be, well, it's going to be when Dwayne's running for president. And then after he makes this, um, he uh, does a little flashback. And then after you're, you're going to see me and cut to me and he's going to talk. He's going to voice over um, about the scene. And it's going to be where I'm, let's say, getting picked up by Andre and he's teaching me a lesson oh, cool. and uh, it's it's very it's a very emotional roller coaster uh, type of show because there's going to be the laughs and there's going to be the real times and where he's really teaching a lesson where he wants people to relate to and the fact that he wasn't always just this big superstar he had his real times and which i know from him days in uswa uh with jerry the king lawler and he was just you know on a talent contract at wwe and was working uh, which was wwf then all that stuff so bradley quickly same thing so kind of yeah. your character is at a certain time high school right and which is a fun time yeah. to play and get to see hit that humbleness of him and yet building him his character in so many ways right yeah exactly now you know of course this is the time of him becoming who he is now so there were some you know there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of growth that has to happen and it's really cool for me because there were a lot of layers for it you know he has he's, he's trying to work a gimmick and he's putting on like a kind of a front at school he's trying to impress the girls he's doing whatever it takes i mean that's telling people his name is yeah. that's kind of like you uh, live at the, the gimmick same right time, now you know what was I mean, that living your gimmick 
you're kind of living your gimmick, yeah. meaning as, a, in, as in, an actor. In a way. Right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, you know, there's also, like like we talk about, you get to also see, you know, those characteristics of him, the, the humble, kind, sweet kid, you know, and he really cares about his family. That's the most important thing to him. And um, it's just really cool to showcase the growth of him. So yeah. I'm going to give a shout out to Dwayne and say, Dwayne, look, I had a story too. So Adrian has a story. Bradley has a story of playing you. And I have a story of meeting you and working in, in, in the same professional, professional wrestling. So everyone tune into The Rock, February 16th, 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central. Appreciate you guys stopping by and best of luck. And I know the show's going to be great and good luck to you guys. So take care. Thank you so Thank much. You All right. That take was care. the only Haley show. Take care, guys. Neil Haley here. Lensec has been a sponsor of the Neil Haley Show and Total Media Network for around a year and a half. And I wanted to tell you a little bit about Lensec. Lensec has been a pioneer in IP security videos since 1998. The company is a trusted security partner with experience around the world. Lensec has experience working with customers in higher education, K-12 education, government, public safety, critical infrastructure, healthcare, commercial, and more. The physical security experts at Lensec help customers develop enterprise solutions for their complex physical security projects using our flagship software, Perspective VMS. Lensec's enterprise-level video management software, Perspective VMS, is a browser-based software that streams and captures IP security camera video. The latest version of PVMS uses HTML5 interactive features in a thin client application that is designed to provide real-time situational awareness. Access control and other advanced features are integrated into a unified security platform, creating an ability to track behavior and movement while monitoring the live or recorded video. For more information, please visit Lensec.com. And now back to the show. Hey guys, welcome to your beautiful day. I'm Jennifer Hall, mother of gratitude, where I hope you have a beautiful day everywhere that you go. And with us, I'm excited because I get to be a little naughty. I get to show you my little naughty side today. But before, I wanna introduce my co-hosts, Pearl Sharenza. Hi, Pearl. Hi. Hi, Jen. Hey, Neil, it's good to be back again. I'm so excited for this segment today. It's so fun after having Broadway to have this really cool new, new piece that we're bringing today. So take it away, Jenna, and introduce our guest. Thanks, Neil, for being with us too. I appreciate you, no you problem. so much. And Neil is our in-house PR firm. So if you need PR, Gratitude Radio has you covered. So today I get to be a little naughty. This is one of my favorite things in the whole world. And I am talking burlesque, baby. I love it. From the flamethrowers to the women, I feel like a kid in a candy store. The choreography is amazing. The costumes are amazing. And I wish I had the technical skill to, to look that good, but it's not gonna happen. So today I'm so happy to bring you a little Hollywood in the house. We have Hollywood Jade, coordinator for, choreographer, sorry. So today we have in the house Hollywood Jade, choreographer for Canada Drag Race. And he has a virtual viewing of his show, Urbanesque Jade Rose Show on February 14th. Happy Valentine's Day. 
And welcome yes. to the show, Jade. Thank you so much, Jen and Pearl, for having me. I am excited to talk some burlesque with you. Yes, and I'm going to moderate this because this is an interesting interview. Just go right to Jen with the first question because I'm going to learn about uh, how everything about this. So go ahead, Jen. Oh my gosh, it just captures my imagination every every time um, I see burlesque. So just tell us how you got started and, and how this is your jam. Perfect. Um, so I am a choreographer based in Toronto, Ontario, and I... 10 years ago, started an urban burlesque company in Toronto called Urbanesque. And um, my inspiration came from partially the movie Burlesque, uh, partially because I was working back and forth between Toronto and LA and burlesque is really big in California. And I had never actually been to a burlesque show until one of the choreographers that I was working with, her name's Ebony Nichols. She was in a burlesque show and I went to see the show and I was like, this is what I want to do in Toronto. Because um, I'd always choreographed, but my work usually was misunderstood because it needed to be seen in a fuller context, right? And so I decided I was going to produce the show and I auditioned girls and I, I taught them old pieces that I had and some new ones and and the rest is history. We're celebrating our 10 year anniversary next month in March. Well, that's amazing. 10 years. I didn't realize that Hollywood. That's awesome. Congratulations. Oh, so, thank you so much. So it's something, it sounds like it was something new to Toronto. I've got many friends up in Canada and everything. How was it received up there and, and how did you get it um, really out to the masses up there to get them to be accepting of it? Yeah. So I did the very first one at this underground club called El Conventurico and the response was insane like people were just like we've never seen anything like this we need more of this because what I really did was I fused classic burlesque with modern and urban contemporary movement and music so it was a fusion of the two worlds that I think really intrigued not just the audience but also like the dancers they they had never explored their sensuality and their sexuality through movement before. Wow. Okay. So let's, um, so kind of looking at this, what's the difference of burlesque versus, I guess, the more of a risque stuff in a way you're looking at back at the old school, cause kind of explain that to me. Mm -hmm. I think the, the, the main difference with, I think burlesque and what makes it burlesque is there's usually an element of performance, right? It, it's, 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 closer to musical theater than it would be to, to stripping, right? And where the similarity comes in is that within burlesque, there's usually a reveal element. There, you start in one thing and there's usually some sort of a reveal. Some go further than others. You know, there's, there's levels to how far you will go. Some go all the way to being topless with pasties and some just like will remove a glove and a hat and a scarf and end up in like a negligee. So, the main difference is that the, the, the element of reveal is what, what keeps it um, classy. The old school stuff, kind of like when you see in different movies like uh, Blazing Saddles, in a way, burlesque in Blazing Saddles. And I'm yeah. just giving you an example of one where 
the, the, the old school, the, the 1920s, the roaring 20s type of thing, right? Yeah, very, very vaudeville, very saloon-based. It was, it was and, and if you think about what was acceptable back then, like a woman showing her thigh was like, <gasps> you know what I mean? So that same element of here comes my leg, it's all really like peekaboo versus ripping your bra off and, and, and just being all exposed. Yeah, the, the, the whole choreography of it is exciting. The buildup, the buildup, mm -hmm. the buildup, the continued buildup. And then one of my friends has a party and, and we always have burlesque. Mostly we always have burlesque. And I love the fire. Do you guys use fire or have you? I don't have fire in my show because fire scares me. <laughs> <laughs> and as the choreographer and like, oh the producer, I know, I know. And it's, it's a very, it's, it's, I think when I think about fire and like the, the contortionist, that is more classic burlesque and more vaudeville. And what I lean more towards is, is if you think about the movie burlesque, where it still has that element of classic burlesque, but the music sounds so current and it, 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 it's pumping and it's thriving, whereas a lot of classic burlesque was done to like a piano. You know what I mean? Dee, 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 yes. And it was, it was really campy. Very one-dimensional. Very one-dimensional. Mm -hmm. The classic, mm -hmm. classic, because they didn't have what we have now. So that was, that was interesting. And yeah, yeah you have and to I, definitely shave before you use fire or else you're, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think what I really wanted to do was find a way of bridging the gap between commercial dance and theater. Yes. And, and burlesque is a good balance because commercially I can get the guys who want to come and see hot girls dance in a bra and panty. And then theatrically I can get the theater people because they understand that there's going to be an element of performance. It's not just going to be dance steps. So, 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 go ahead. Go ahead. No, sorry. I'm make sure you get a question. I, I want you go ahead with your question. I'm so I, I love the I love everything you described. I think um, you know I I checked out some of your work and the one for me. So I'm 57 years old. Let's just set that right there. That's and amazing. So, you look so good. Thank you very much. So I went online. I was like, okay, I could never show my mom this because she would be like, oh my lord. But yours, I think what you just described is your. I think it was called the Hori Heart. Mm -hmm. uh, that mm -hmm. was like such a great example of what you're describing right it was so cool to like that whole edgy part to it and everything it was really really cool I was like I actually sent it to my son who's 24 years old and it's like yeah you check this out he's like mom really <laughs> it's really cool but I think that just kind of like takes together what you described so let me ask you this how was your mom with all of this so one of the things that makes me the happiest about what I do is that not just my mom, my mom comes to all of my shows, but my mom is sort of a hippie. You know what I mean? She's sort of like, <laughs> she's cool. But like, even these girls, like I, I tend to have relatively young girls between the ages of 19 to like 28 tend to be the basis of my cast. And their parents come and see these shows. And this one girl, her dad, came to me and said, I've never seen my daughter look more beautiful. And I was like, 
you do realize that she was in a bra and panties, <laughs> right? And he's like, yeah, but like, she's, I've just never seen her, like her internally look more beautiful. And I was like, that's how I knew that what I was doing was on the right track. Because for a, a young girl's father to come and say that, I had this other girl that just in my show, Jane Rose, that is going to, I'm airing on Valentine's Day. This girl's grandmother came and saw the show. And her grandmother was like, I don't normally leave my house, but when's the next one? You know? Honestly, what you're dressed, the the way they dress, I'm going to go right to Jen quickly, is like in Dancing with the Stars. Really, it's not as risky as you think when when you see what ends up on Dancing with the Stars or some of these other dancing shows. So you're really taking, and theater in certain ways. Sorry, not to cut you, but I think what it is, too, is it's what what I have them doing. Like, even though it's very sensual and, and it can borderline sexual, it's still tastefully done. You know what I mean? Like, they're not opening their crotch to the audience. Like, if they're going to open their legs, their back is to the audience. So it's creating this this constant, like, this bated breath to see what's going to happen next. And I think that's the, the thing that's similar to like dancing with the stars. Cause if you were to take those costumes and put a pole in the middle of it, it changes the whole narrative, you know? So it's, it's a taste level. And one of the things I love, my background is theater and acting. And I love the theatrical parts of some of the, dancers having their own props and everything what props have you gotten into for your vignettes um i think i've had i've had a girl do a pole routine but i made sure that she was dressed you know so there there has been pole stuff i like to do things with canes and had some boas one girl did a solo and she had um fabric fans and she was on point and she like traveled through the audience i used mics stands I use the environment one girl solo was like all along the bar and then she falls into the arms of boys like I really like my events and my shows to feel um interactive and like the show can happen anywhere you know and when I sell tickets there's like action zones so if you're sitting on the aisles or in the front two rows you could be pulled in and brought in and involved in some way or shape or form that's incredible. I love those action zones. That's awesome. That mm-hmm. is so cool. So I know you've worked with Snoop Dogg and you worked with the dream and the heroes. So who is that dream person that you want to work with that you haven't yet? Oh my Lord. Ah, the dream person that I want to work with. It's hard because a lot of the people that I really want to work with have passed away. Like I was a huge fan of Aaliyah. Like I loved her. I love Whitney Houston. Like like, the, I, I really want to work with, like, legends. You know what I mean? Like, I really want to work with people who have done it, been there, and, and, and appreciate the talent that I contribute to their show. But if I was going to pick somebody alive, my dream artist, I would really like to work with Dua Lipa, actually. I love how her music is so worldly and that she's open to trying different things. Like, like she's, she's very, I like that type of, I like her energy. So yeah, she'd probably be on my list. She would add a lot to your show too. Just with that expansion of the world, just having that in there or go all around the world and burlesque. So well. She would, and she like, she would lend so well to it. You know what I mean? I'm surprised they haven't done it yet, but sh- don't, that's, that's where I come in. Neil, can you come <laughs> up please? Make that dream come true. Make that gratitude dream come true. 
Yes, gratitude. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so go with your gratitude moment, John. So my gratitude moment, I have a question that I ask every guest. And where along your journey did you have this gratitude moment that brought you to where you are now? Ooh. Um, my gratitude moment was when I met my, no, truth be told, it was when I was like six or seven years old. I danced in a, um, a community group and all the kids got scared and like backed out. And I was like, I'm going on stage. And I went on stage by myself and I did the routine and the reaction from the crowd is what solidified for me that this is what I was supposed to do. And that has, I've carried that with me continuously through everything. That is gorgeous. That is an amazing gratitude moment. Thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you for asking. That's what Gratitude Radio Network and Your Beautiful Day is about. Pearl, last question for Hollywood Jade. So Hollywood, what's the next thing? We've got the February 14th coming out. What's your next project that you've got working on and how can we reach you? Uh, the next project, uh, unfortunately, COVID put a wrinkle in my plans. I, I had planned to do a uh, film an anniversary special in which I went back and looked at all the routines from the last 10 years that we've worked on and with the current cast, reimagined them and present them on March um, 17th, which is our anniversary. But now I have to pivot. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out a good way to put together an anniversary special so that we can celebrate the 10 year anniversary of Urbaness. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Hollywood Jade. Um, my website is coming soon. And yeah, for bookings, you can contact my agent at Talent House. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So Jen, close it out. Go Jen. Jen, you're on mute. I am on mute. <laughs> I want to thank you for being on the show with us today. We so appreciate you sharing with us burlesque and your journey with it. I think it's one of those things that just everyone needs to go to. And I'm excited to eventually see your show. I can't wait until the 14th of this month. So yeah. for everyone listening, we've been sharing some time with Hollywood Jade, choreographer to Canada's Drag Race, and has a virtual viewing of his show, Urbanesque, Jane Rose Show, on February 14th. We want to congratulate you on your 10-year anniversary of Burlesque with Urbanesque. And thank I like you to thank so much. You're welcome. You're welcome. We love you so much. I'd like to thank Neil Haley. Yes. And Thank you so much for being with me and Pearl Sharenza. It was great being on. So excited for you, Hollywood Jade. Yeah. I appreciate definitely, you guys. Thank definitely you. some ex exciting times coming and, uh, and just the opportunities. So that's great. With, we can't wait to hear about you when your website comes out and all those different things and appreciate everything. So go ahead, uh, Jen, I guess you go with your final saying, but I appreciate you coming on for sure. Thank you so much. So wherever your day goes today, remember you are blessed, you are loved, and you are sacred. We love you. Mwah. Have a beautiful day.
celebrity slots. Free spin. Free to play mobile social slot games in the likeness of your favorite celebrities. Making money. Spin to win celebrity experiences through sweepstakes. Free to download, free to play. Yeah, baby. What are you waiting for? Win meet and greets, celebrity merchandise, gift cards, and more. Download celebrity slots today. We're back here to the Dr. Christopher Hall show, and I'm excited to welcome the program, Dr. Christopher Hall. Dr. Hall, thank you for your service. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. Uh, just working hard to take care of his patients in the emergency room. Like our guest today. So this is, a, you've told me after you saw that we did a podcast together and a lot of different, uncovering a lot of things on COVID-19. After we had uh, Dr. Stella Emanuel on, you said, I want to have Dr. Caxton on as well. So let's go ahead and introduce our guest. Well, no problem. I mean, and you know, this is really, you know, we have a giant in our midst here. Okay, this is incredible. Uh, Dr. Uh, Caxton O'Perry, a gentleman with more than 30 years of clinical experience, uh, really uh, the, form, the world's foremost expert in uh, the medical complications of divorce, things like after divorce, have heart attack, stroke. He's written uh, many books, more than 18. But I'm really interested in this most recent book, and it's about hydrochloroquine, and this is experience with it. And so uh, without further ado, I'm, I'm uh, very excited to welcome uh, Dr. Caxton O'Perry to the show. Welcome to the show, uh, Dr. Caxton O'Perry. Thank you, Dr. Christopher. How are you today? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm very excited to be talking to you this morning. Yes, and you're going to find out in Dr. Uh, Christopher Hall's show, it's all about your story. We've never had the story, Dr. Caxton, so I'm so excited. So go ahead, Dr. Hall, with the first question. Sure. Well, no problem. We've got some very interesting uh, details to get into about what's happening today. But um, just quickly, uh, uh, I always like to ask other doctors this question. Why did you decide to go into medicine, uh, Dr. O'Perry? A very interesting point. Um, you know, when we came back from England, I was born in England. My parents, uh, my dad is an electrical engineer. My mom worked as a secretary governor. Um, but they came with a little kit with a stethoscope in it. I think that was inductive. <laughs> so I, I did the free, you know, I used to do physical for uh, little kids in the neighborhood. <laughs> so that was planted in me. But the trigger for what I do in medicine, which is the acutely ill, the sickest patients in hospital medicine, critical care and the emergency room, that came watching my mom. My mom died in a motor vehicle accident at the age of 13. I was 13. She was 35. And as I knelt by the casket, I said to myself, I could never forget that. Day. I said, if there was a good emergency room, you wouldn't have died. I was 13, remember, and I was, yes. in, I was yes. in Nigeria. And um, that has been a trigger for me working and doing everything I've done up to date. Wow. That's absolutely Great. powerful. Great. And that's Great. that trigger that you set yourself, Dr. Caxton, when you think about specifically that made your mind up that you want to become a doctor. 
what were those steps that you had to after figuring that out? Because we've I've read your books and I understand specifically that you're very systematic once you come up with a plan. Yes. So I uh, had to choose medicine was there as an option because of you know grades and doing extremely well and just finding academic the easy side. But there was that thing in me that you call a depth of compassion that I felt, yeah, today we now feel where if I'm a billionaire, I can help a lot of people. But back when I was growing up, if you're really smart and you had that compassion and empathic uh, heart, you probably go into medicine if you've got the tenacity to do the work required, the heavy lifting academically, so to say. You didn't think of becoming a billionaire and help the world. <laughs> you thought of medicine or pharmacy. So that's how I chose. It was a very easy choice for me to make at the time. And I could see that it's still one of the easiest things that I can do naturally today. But that came with a lot of training, a lot of dedication, reading, sacrificing. Um, you'd say when people partied, I partied, but I partied with my textbooks carefully <laughs> in little pieces of paper in my shirt or jacket pockets when I go to parties. Um, so... It's, I'm a, I'm a 24-hour reader, 24-7 reader. And that, I think, was one of the major things that made it for me to be able to go to med school and finish well. All right, Dr. Wow. Awesome. Yeah, no problem. So now, you know, over the years, uh, practicing medicine, I've, I've met lots of doctors from around the world who trained around the world. And one thing I've noticed is that um, sometimes training outside the U.S., um, you get a, a different view of kind of what's going on. And um, now, Dr. Caxton, was any of your training done outside of the U.S. Uh, so far as research or any postgraduate training or anything to where you were, you know, where you met a lot of other doctors who would be working around the world right now? Um, so I went to med school in Nigeria. I did my internship in a teaching hospital in Nigeria. And then I came uh, to the U.S., because you, know, you have the most superb and straightforward residency training program in the world. So yes, um, I did a biotech stint in research where we uh, developed some FDA-approved uh, ultra-spectrophotometric assays for HIV testing. And that's where I met a lot more diverse right. people. Um, Indians, Chinese, a guy from uh, Kenya, Togo, I think, uh, Mali. And of course, Americans. So, um, and it was a very diverse research group. Most of us, most people were talented. Some did music, painting, uh, programming on the side, even though we're working on HIV diagnostics in uh, California. So, but going into residency, I was in Brooklyn, New York. And you know, Brooklyn, New York is another very diverse place. I did my residency at yes, the hospital center. Um, and again, it's all training, you're hands on. You train, you walk your head off, you walk 36 hours, you get dizzy, you go to the cafeteria, you eat, you come back, you take a nap, you come and write your notes. So we went, I went through the whole school method of residency training. It was hard and, um, you know, but I'm grateful for it. There's no challenge I face now that I regret uh, because the training prepares you for anything you can face. Exactly. You know, um, I have uh, just a quick follow-up question too. Uh, on, on that. And, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I understand that those were the days again, you know, when we were in residency and we had no kind of restriction hours and, and that kind of stuff, we 
I think I was on a little in that. I had the thing where you kind of work 36 hours and take, you know, that's it. There's no residency um, hours I have now for the doctors coming through. Now, the reason for that question, I asked you that, uh, Dr. Caxito Perry, is that um, I think it's important during this pandemic, okay, what's going on, that actually you are able to communicate with uh, people you've met through your training, uh, other doctors who are working in maybe uh, Saudi Arabia or they may be working in Europe somewhere, uh, United Kingdom. And so that's the whole purpose of that question, okay. that it sounds like you have international um, connections with other physicians working around the world. Correct. Absolutely. And I stay in touch with several of them. And a couple of weeks ago, I met a nurse, and this is a surprise. The nurse in the ICU is in the COVID unit. Um, so she is, I think, from Egypt or Lebanon. And she said, Dr. Perry, she asked me a question and I said, well, most of these patients won't be here if we could use hydroxychloroquine. She turned around and looked at me and said, what? She said, that's one of, one of, one of my friends are saying. She says, some of my friends in Lebanon, in Egypt, we text each other and they say, what's wrong with your American doctors? I said, what? She said, yes. Yesterday, somebody still asked me, what's wrong with you guys in America? Why can't you use hydroxychloroquine? So yeah, that's a very, very key uh, issue that you brought up. It seems down here, the perspective is tailored towards regulations and doctors are not able to think outside the cage. I think calling it outside the box is putting it mildly because it makes it look like the box is just an area where normal things are going on. But when you say think outside the cage, it inevitably presumes that you're inside a cage and we all know a cage is a bad thing. So I think most of the doctors who have no other broader international perspective of medicine and other ways of looking at things besides what the government or regulatory bodies tell them they are missing out on actual care and perspectives for handling the pandemic. And if you ask me, I will say that's probably the number one reason why over 460,000 people have died in the US because the doctors cannot see beyond what they have been told either on the news or by people like the uh, NIH and CDC and FDA. Dr. Caxton, Dr. Hall, I started booking them on podcasts before COVID was really big, meaning we were doing episodes in January and February before the pandemic came. I think December as well, when it was on the radar in, in China. Did you expect this to be this kind of thing? Were you ready for this in December and January? What happened? All right. So let me tell you, in January, in December, I told my wife, look, we always go to Nigeria. We do a lot of work there. We travel back and forth. We help people. We never really go there to have fun. So I said, in January, I'm going to go to Nigeria, buy my ticket in January, and go to Nigeria in February as soon as I finish my shifts. So I squeezed all my shifts so that I'll do a lot of those shifts in January and in early February so that the latter half or more of February, I will go to Nigeria, play with my old friends, come back, and around April, May, my wife and I will then go to Nigeria. That was the plan. But in January, uh, that first week, when we heard the news from China, 
um, I saw an unnatural evolution. That is, this virus, if it's been around this long, it will not cause this sudden trajectory of 41 cases that they said they saw in Wuhan. And I told my wife, I'm not traveling anymore. Something is fishy here. And so, yes, I could see, I just didn't know to what extent, but by February, when this guy, Didier Raoult in France, announced that they had 46, 41 patients that they treated with hydroxychloroquine, they got some initial results. And we saw the way the NIH that had actually done studies on hydroxychloroquine much earlier, about five or six years earlier, the way they were silent about hydroxychloroquine, I knew something was fishy. I just didn't know that we had people that dangerous that will allow this many Americans to die because of a hidden agenda. That's what I wasn't sure of. So yes, I was partly prepared. What I wasn't prepared for was that it will be the medical establishment with people like the NIH, CDC, FDA, that will be involved in what looks like some insane ideology or agenda. Because when you look at the information on a drug like hydroxychloroquine, its efficacy, this is one of the few drugs where molecular docking has been used. In other words, when you take a tablet for, let's say Tylenol for a fever, for example, you're not gonna see scientists going to see how Tylenol acts and at the molecular level or looking under microscopes using spectrophotometry to prove that I mean, Tylenol works on some part of your brain to cause a fever to subside. But with respect to hydroxychloroquine, we have data, scientific facts showing that it not only works at the molecular level and under electron microscopy and molecular docking techniques, there is obvious scientific proof that hydroxychloroquine blocks this virus and therefore giving it early is a scientifically established fact. You can put a man in the electric chair for lying if he says that doesn't work because the proof is there. And so this is insane to me that anyone will even wake up or any doctor anywhere in the world will wake up on July 1st and say that hydroxychloroquine is ineffective, which is, you know, what happened for that down the road around July, at the end of July, when Dr. Fauci came out and said, uh, hydroxychloroquine is ineffective. I, that's what got me so mad that I wrote that book in less than eight, six weeks. Wow, right. that's incredible. Next question, Dr. Hall. Well, well, no problem, no problem. And I just wanna, let me just kind of summarize quickly, you know, my, my, my background in chemistry is pretty extensive <clears throat> uh, with training on the graduate level. And so what Dr. Uh, O'Perry is saying, just kind of summarizing for in, in general terms is that with the equipment that we have, okay, suppose we were able to have a camera that could actually see the molecule hydroxychloroquine working on the surface of a cell, if we could actually see that, um, then we would be able to see that that molecule can actually, it actually has a mechanism where it can uh, stop uh, viral uptake of a cell, um, and we can actually see that with a camera. That's kind of what he's saying. I'm summarizing it. So now, um, Dr. Cashin uh, O'Perry, and I think, like I said, what we're hearing today on this show um, amongst uh, 
ourselves and again two doctors talking we're not going to hear this anywhere in the country okay because we obviously have some people who are at fault and it sounds like 400 plus thousand americans have died uh because of an agenda that probably is based on profit and so uh is this something that you kind of found again you mentioned you did kind of find this out uh, you know, from your experience there, going to, uh, you know, wanting to travel, but then we had friends who were working across the world. So tell us a little about that. Your friends who are working across the world, other trained physicians and doctors with clinical training and skills, been doctors for a while, were treating patients, and, and what did they find? You tell us about that. Yeah. So in uh, we had a virtual conference of all students last year, around I think May or June, April or May. Um, they provost of the college of medicine the current provost of my medical school is my classmate he came down with covid and he was a keynote speaker at that reunion we had the reunion on zoom and he said thank god for chloroquine now my med school is one of the most reputable medical schools in africa and uh, the equivalency of that is to say that's the harvard of africa uh, University of Ibadan. Right. So when the provost of a college of medicine that's training, that has postgraduate training in surgery, neurosurgery, or the specialties, is saying, I got sick, I took hydroxychloroquine, I took all this hot peppers, ginger, and all that stuff, but hydroxychloroquine was the main drug that I took. You got to listen to that. And not only at that time, I had some people in the group that thought I was just pro-hydroxychloroquine because they had some other political issues with me. And I said, you know, now you're listening to the provost himself saying he gives that drug. As a matter of fact, last year, several of my colleagues, some stopped talking to each other because the ones who were prescribing it we're getting results. And the ones who are not prescribing it, of course, if you don't prescribe something to your patients, you're not gonna get results. They were looking at or looking for data. So on an international scale, however, a lot of my friends, I have some friends in Saudi Arabia, some in South Africa, they were all prescribing hydroxychloroquine and getting results. As a matter of fact, in Nigeria, we have an isolation center for COVID and to the best of my knowledge, as far as the mid of the year when the inflection point rose in America, that there was a drop in Nigeria. And if you know Nigeria, we're so disjointed when it comes to healthcare delivery systems. Yet, when you go, when you're diagnosed and you're COVID-19 positive, you go to the isolation center, they give you zinc, zithromax, and hydroxychloroquine with vitamin C in Nigeria. And um, so, yes, a lot of different people that I've spoken to, and I do get phone calls from people around the world who knew me or saw me on Facebook and say, look, I have this hydroxychloroquine, how do I take it? It's not a question of whether you're gonna tell me not to take it or take it, I already have it. I just don't wanna take an overdose. So what do I do? People are calling me for those things. Some people don't even have my phone number. They just go on Facebook. They, call me through Facebook Messenger. And, you know, so I don't know why we're handicapped here in the US, but
but colleagues, friends, and even strangers have benefited, not just from me knowing that hydroxychloroquine works, but some of, some of those people have saved their own lives by taking the initiative to call and ask the question about dosage from me. Incredible. It's incredible. It's exactly. So I guess, uh, Dr. Hall, listening to what Dr. Caxton says, what are your thoughts? Wow. I mean, uh, <laughs> I would describe them as racing thoughts, but uh, specifically, um, you know, a lot of uh, like what he's saying is that um, uh, how, how even in Nigeria, they have a, a center set up to treat early COVID and that patients are doing well. Um, here in the United States, with close to a half a million deaths, um, something is not right when we have a medicine uh, that can uh, stop the patients from going. Now, Dr. Cax, Dr. Caxton Perry, he works in uh, you know in the ICU with very very sick patients, uh, people who are dying. Okay, this virus has affected their body. It's in the lung. It's destroying the lung tissue. They cannot breathe. These people are dying. So. Uh, if there's a policy that is stopping doctors from writing a medicine uh, that is essential and, and uh, it's wrong. And again, I've seen the same thing working in the emergency room for the last 20 years. It's really, I've never even seen anything like this uh, where we were not able to help the patient, but these patients literally come in from the ambulance, the EMTs bring them in. Their oxygens are sometimes in the seventies or eighties. Normal oxygen, by the way, is like 99%. And so when you're at 70, you're in bad shape. Uh, these patients, and I've seen them, they'll die right there in front of the uh, uh, secretary's desk before they make it to uh, a room in the ER pit. It's, it's really devastating. So um, it, it's just, it's horrible. And I think, you know, the whole idea of what the government called an EUA, which was the temporary, uh, you know, permit for the use of hydroxychloroquine. I think that was one of the greatest deceptions for uh, the American people. See, hydroxychloroquine works to block the virus entering. And if it's already in the cell, at the earlier stage, it prevents it from being released or from releasing its genetic material you know, by changes in the pH, making it more alkaline. But the EUA, the temporary permit was given. And in that instruction, they said, don't give it to the people that need it. <laughs> it's pretty clear. That is a crime on humanity. But I, Dr. Dr. Hall, what I see here is, you know, <laughs> we have a lot of lawyers in America Many of them cannot, all of them cannot be on the left. They cannot all be anti whatever we can think of. So what I'm looking at sure. besides Robert Kennedy is, I think this is a law issue. This is an issue of international crime and crimes on humanity. When are we going to get all these lawyers? Because we have so many brilliant lawyers in the US. They are so used to suing. They've got all the cases. They've got all the knowledge, all the experience. When are they going to show up? Because I think when I thought about your interview with me, that the only thing that can change everything right now is for some groups of lawyers who have all that they need to put up a lawsuit. Not, you know, a group of doctors trying to sue somebody, you know, trying to figure out how much money we're going to pay their lawyer. 
you know, when the lawyers themselves gather themselves together and put up a lawsuit of treason against the American people, I don't think they can lose that lawsuit. Understood. Wow. Okay. So Dr. Hall, go ahead and summarize unless you have one more question for Dr. Caxton. Yeah, I do have kind of one more question. And it's just, you know, being a doctor out here in the emergency room and myself working over at 17 different hospitals over 20 years in different emergency departments and it included burn centers and, you know, just, you know, seeing this, this is a travesty, okay? Um, and we know that Dr. Fauci with SARS-CoV-1 uh, um, wrote a paper, either said it or implied or inferred from the paper, or you can draw a conclusion from the paper that hydrochloroquine would work for a SARS-type virus. And that paper, I'm sure, is easily uh, pulled up. So now, why would we come years later when we have a deadly virus killing uh, almost a half million people turn around and say on national TV that hydrochloroquine does not work for this virus? That just makes no sense to me. Why would... That's because he paid for them to genetically engineer that virus. And I, one of the Understood. podcasts, yeah, one of the podcasts, Neil, remember, we talked about yeah. the evidence, yeah. the gain of function, and the, after they got the patent for that deadlier virus, the uh, government then sent a letter to 220 research labs saying, hey, stop working on the deadly virus. We have gain of function. In other words, we now have a deadly virus. This was in October, 2014. And the patent for the deadly coronavirus was obtained by Pulbright Institute from the United Kingdom in September 2014. So October 2014, Fauci and his people sent out a letter to 220 research labs to say, we're not going to give you any more money because we've got what we're looking for. Wow. Incredible. Incredible. All right. So now, any other questions uh, for Dr. Caxton, uh, Dr. Hall? Well, just this the last question that, that everyone, I guess, would like to know, whoever hears this, uh, is that um, and, and we know he talks about wanting to be a doctor and take care of patients, and he works every day now um, you know, in a critical care environment where he's saving the lives of these COVID patients. Um, uh, I guess, why did you decide to step forward and reveal the truth of what's going on, um, Dr. O'Pair? Well, I guess the... I thought when I started that people just didn't have time. You know, most of, about 60% of doctors are burnt out, right? I have a way of managing my time that if I decide I want to get something done, even if it means five minutes a day, then that's a lot of hours in a year. That's how I calculate it. So if something is just going to take two, two days, but I don't have the time and it means it's going to take seven months. I'll calculate my time and do it in seven months instead of not doing it at all. So I felt a lot of us doctors, so many of us are burnt out. Many of us have no time. Maybe this information is not out there. So let me do all the research and make it available. Then I realized that that's what the CDC is actually paid to do. But the CDC is not providing any kind of resource for us to be able to think about how to manage this disease. That got me upset. And that's when I started researching and I decided to write the first book, the second book, and then the third book on COVID-19, because it's pretty obvious. And I said, what, and one of the phrases I used in the second book was the information the CDC has is like a, 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 a prescription 
written by a janitor for other janitors, not by the CDC for doctors. It's so powerful. Uh, Dr. Caxton, where can we purchase the book and stuff? Where can we go? The hydroxychloroquine debate is on Kindle and Amazon and COVID-19 physician treatment strategies that goes into all the different ways by which the uh, virus kills is available on most online stores, iTunes, bandsandnobles.com. Um, and you can get that book virtually on any retailer, online retailer. The COVID-19 physician treatment strategies is an ebook only. The hydroxychloroquine debate that exposes all the lies is both uh, in Kindle version as well as the um, uh, paperback edition on Amazon. And uh, Dr. Hall, now summarize Dr. Caxton. Wow. Well, there we have it. An international speaker, uh, an expert uh, in medicine uh, with years of clinical training, an author of over 18 books uh, with knowledge of uh, uh, diseases around the world and training around the world, a voice in the wilderness. Uh, wow, we have been just uh, blessed this morning uh, with uh, Dr. Caxton and all he has done. And I think that, uh, again, people will look at this and, and, and when you look at it, you'll see the truth. So thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Dr. Hall. It's an opportunity and a blessing. Thank you. All right. And that's what we finally yes, got a chance to talk to Dr. Caxton about the book. Everyone needs to go pick up that book and also your marriage books. Tell us a little bit about that, Dr. Caxton. Well, I have some marriage strategies that uh, are devoid of uh, uh, therapy. So if you want to know what to do and not lose control of your life through a bad relationship, I think if you look online on Amazon, I have several books on relationships and one on divorce medicine, which talks about how bad marriages can actually double your risk of a stroke, quadruple your risk of breast cancer, et cetera. And these are all research-based evidence material. But I simplify the process of identifying who is right for you and building a marriage with that person without the need for marriage therapy. But of course, that presumes that you're both mentally healthy to start with. Excellent. 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 All right. Well, thanks again. And Incredible. I appreciate it, guys. All right, guys, that was the Dr. Christopher Hall show. Take care, guys. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Mike Velarde show. I'm excited to welcome to Mike Velarde. Mike, what's going on? And so we're going to talk politics today because just, again, we had a nice conversation last week about you know, your business and your story, but now everything's hitting the fan again. First of all, what about the travel ban of Florida? Well, I think it's ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. I mean, all that is designed to do is kill tourism here in Florida. I think that's a very partisan um, shot at, at, at the state of Florida because it's run by a Republican that supported Trump. Yeah, so when you think about, you know, say killing t tourism, uh, for for Florida. So what is the process? What are they talking about when they regarding the travel ban? Well, what's going to happen is they're going to stop people from coming here. They're going to have to, they're going to have to quarantine. It's going to, you know, we, we make our money in Florida based on hotel taxes from Disney World, Disney World, Orlando. I mean, South Florida, Miami Beach, um, that's, that's South Florida. Instead of having an income tax, we have, you know, use taxes. 
and that's where we generate our revenue and it's worked out very well for us in the past. You know, but, but you know, everything Biden does is with a partisan hint to it. I mean, Burisma is directly gonna pro profit from him stopping the pipeline and stopping us from having our own, uh, you know, gas and oil. We became energy independent for the first time in 75 years under President Trump. And now we're going back to being dependent upon the Saudis and other countries for our gas and oil. So and talk about, so the travel ban, when is that, is that when put in effect or it has to be voted upon or is he could do an executive order? Well, he could try to do an executive order, but I think it's going to be ignored. I mean, executive orders don't have the force of law. I mean, because they're not law. They haven't been, they haven't, I think Al is just joining us now. Yeah, just, let's, let's keep going with what we're saying and let him jump in. So, I mean, that's the only thing he can do is he, he, he is ruling by executive fiat. He's decided he was going to be, he has signed more executive orders than any other president in the history of the United States of America. That's all he's done, one dictate after the other. So he has to get Congress to vote on the travel ban for Florida. If it's going to be, it's going to have any real force. I don't think the governor is going to go along with it at all. It's going to kill our state economy. All right. So introduce our guest, Mike. Okay, this is my friend Al, Alan Charles. Mr. Charles is, uh, is, a, is a very successful businessman, entrepreneur. Um, he's very, very educated when it comes to politics. He does a lot of research. He, um, he works in the field of law, although he's not a lawyer, he's better than most. And he's also a good friend of mine. All right, Alan, what's up? Hi there. How you doing today? I'm doing well. Fantastic. So we were talking first about, about the travel ban to Florida. If that occurs at Biden calling for a travel ban, uh, president Biden, what, I mean, what are your thoughts on this? Well, my, my thoughts are that the states have a lot of say in this. I mean, the states are basically set up as uh, separate countries, as compact states. And a lot of people aren't really aware of that. Whereas the states, uh, you know, conduct their own, uh, uh, how they operate. And whereas um, I don't believe that the authority coming from the federal government would stop them from uh, doing travel. The only thing they could do is cut off funds or, um, you know, it has anything to do with their business on their buildings or anything that they own. So I, I believe that it would hurt the tourism uh, significantly. And I think the governor would step in and, and, uh, and absolutely override it. Okay. So we're going back, Mike, we first covered that. And then he's talking about the pipeline. Uh, Al, what are your thoughts on this again, where he kind of eliminated that pipeline, which then all helped his interests and hurt uh, the economy by all these people losing their jobs. Well, again, I, I think a lot of this stuff is uh, by design to actually, you know, hurt the jobs and uh, transfer um, wealth from uh, out, outside the country. So we have to get off depending on uh, being uh, um, energy independent to be independent on purchasing our oil from other other you know mid-east or wherever else okay so more like a coast okay well it was a great show guys take care and uh great content appreciate it guys thanks neil all right great thank that's, you that's